This is Dot. And this is Lindsay. And you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today, we welcome Elizabeth Fredericks. Elizabeth is an assistant professor of English at Hillsdale College. She grew up as a voracious reader and eventually studied both literature and the intersection of Christianity and literature, earning her PhD from Baylor University in 2016. Her work focuses on how modern literary writers use religious imagery and narratives and classical literature to both critique the past and wrestle with the present. Her article, Divine Mothers, Demeter and the Virgin Mary in the Poetry of Eavan Boland, Paula Meehan, and Mary O'Malley is forthcoming in Christianity and Literature later this year. And another one of her favorite poets is George McKay Brown, who we'll be discussing much more today. Welcome, Elizabeth. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing well. Great. So how would you like to start? Do you want to start by maybe telling us some more about George McKay Brown? Because I don't know, he's not actually a poet that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many of our listeners will be familiar with him. Yeah, he's not actually particularly well known over on this side of the Atlantic here in the States, but he was, especially during his lifetime, a very popular poet and novelist over in the UK. Born in 1921 in the Orkney Islands, and uh, and he actually spent almost his entire life there. He spent about six years in Edinburgh, but other than that, entire life in Orkney. Um, mm. And so that's a key part of his own identity, and it's really central to pretty much everything he writes. He's really fascinated with Orkney's past, especially its medieval past, and, and he's very interested in the saga literature that relates to Orkney as well. And so all of this shows up in his poetry as he goes. Um, he's kind of a late bloomer in terms of writing. He always is interested in reading, um, and he does. He winds up doing a lot of it because he's diagnosed with tuberculosis when oh, he's no. in his late teens, essentially, mm-hmm. and uh, struggles on and off with that until finally antibiotics are available and he can actually mm-hmm. uh, be treated effectively. Uh, but it did mean several stays in sanatoriums, um, a lot of sort of uh, respiratory issues through his life that left him um, unemployed, and so just doing a lot of reading, sitting in rooms alone. And, and from there, he started writing... And he wound up attending uh, university when he was actually about 30 years old. He went to Newcastle or um, New Battle Abbey College, which was run at that time by the fellow Orkney poet Edwin Muir, who was about a generation or two older than him. And so he starts attending there when he's about 30, transfers eventually to Edinburgh University, where he keeps reading, keeps writing. He's very self-deprecating about himself as a student, <laughs> He was um, rather lazy and mediocre in many ways. Good when he applied himself and lousy the rest of the time. So um, many of us can, can you know, agree, feel the same way so about relatable ourselves. relatable in that so, way. Yeah. I mean, he even admits, he goes, to pass my exam, sometimes I never read the book. I just read what smarter people said about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that. Never. Never. <laughs> never. Um, So yes, but he does start, he starts writing poetry, especially with Edmund Muir. Muir's a really important mentor for him in particular. And uh, so he starts writing poetry, gets some of it published. And that's really where he gets to start. He publishes his first poetry collection in 1959 um, with, I believe, the Hogarth Press and, and continues publishing and fiddles around with plays and things like that as well. And eventually someone suggests to him that he try his hand at writing a novel. And at first he goes, "Mm, I just, I'm a poet. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could do a novel, but he does have this idea that's sort of percolating that he picks away at kind of here and there with little snatches of dialogue, little sort of impressionistic scenes. And then he starts going, maybe, maybe there's a whole narrative here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it helps that he's very fond of has this deep fondness for the number seven and structuring things in sevens. And he goes, maybe if I structure this novel in the form of one week on the island, and it's on one of the Orkney islands, that'll give it the structure I need to actually get it done. And he has a wonderful part in his autobiography where he's talking about this and says, the structure of the week also appealed to him because he felt on the island where he grew up every day had a very particular flavor to it. Like Monday was washing day. And so everything smelled like laundry and clothes drying and things like that. And Wednesday was market day. So everybody kind of converged on the town center. And then Friday was that giddy day when everyone's let out from school. And, and so he goes, 
that'll give it sh- not just shape, but also kind of flavor to each day as we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the genesis of his first novel published in 1972. Um, so he's 51 years old at the time. Right. Again, a late bloomer, which is yeah. kind of encouraging for many of us, I think. Um, and so Greenville was published in 1972 to uh, mostly pretty warm reviews. And I discovered it um, when I was in doing my master's degree. One of my professors told me, I think you would like this writer, George Mackay Brown. And so I started diving into his poetry and then into his fiction. And she was very correct. I liked him a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I wound up doing a dissertation chapter on um, him and his use of ritual, not just in his poetry, but also in Greenville itself as the novel. And so that is the manuscript, the manuscript for Greenville, uh, which I got to handle at um, the University of Edinburgh's Special Collections. Uh, And it was really fun because it was not at all what I expected when I was planning to handle the manuscript (laughs) for a novel. Um, I think I expected, you know, a nice sheaf of papers or some notebooks. And I started requesting the folders once I got there and I'm just getting these packets of like all these different shapes and sizes of paper, paper clip together. And some of them are still the original metal paper clips even, which is a little terrible. Oh, I know. <laughs> so they're like rusting into the. <laughs> rusting onto the paper. Yes. Oh, <laughs> so, no. um, but yes, yeah, so it was, it was such a, a surprising experience to go, Oh, I don't have this like nice stack of paper to work mm-hmm. with. I have all these, Odds and ends. And occasionally I would have a nice stack, but my initial introduction to the manuscript for Greenville was just piles of paper, paper clipped together. Right. So was the reasoning, was his process that he would sort of have, this is sort of what I'm imagining, like he has an idea and I have this receipt and now I'm going to write it on the receipt and then sort of put it in with the other stuff that I have. Is that kind of what you think? Some of it definitely was. Some of it was like, bits of paper looked to be torn out of notebooks or notepads. Um, so they were more regular actual bits of paper, um, but they weren't in a notebook anymore. Um, mm-hmm. He'd kind of grouped things together. And then yes, he would write. So he would write sometimes on normal things, which is great. And then sometimes <laughs> he'd just write on whatever he had at hand. And it's good to remember that he was very minimally employed for most of his life, which he mm-hmm. pokes fun at himself for, but he was, he was on the dole most of the time because he wasn't, good enough health um to sort of hold a regular job and then once he starts making money from his writing he doesn't need to um you know have a job anyway uh so he has like he's often goes to like bingo or the pubs or things like that and so he'll just write on whatever paper is available to him Mm -hmm. and so sometimes he would write i did find a bit of um dialogue that was written on the back of a bingo card for instance <laughs> notes and I'll share these pictures with you it's written on a piece of what looks like a newspaper advertisement oh, um, and he, amazingly he kept all of it which seemed right. remarkable as well so yeah so you're just working with this fascinating hodgepodge of stuff and trying to figure out it makes it a nightmare to figure out what got written when as well mm-hmm. it's very hard to track the drafting process right so did he eventually, because it was, you have a, you have the book that you, you actually held it up to the camera before we started recording. So it got transcribed at some point. Do you, did he pass it on to someone or did he actually transcribe it himself into whatever became the final not, published? I'm not totally sure because his materials are a little bit divided. A lot of the manuscript materials are at the University of Edinburgh. But the typescripts are all at the public library in Orkney. Oh, oh, that's nice. That that's actually really nice that Orkney gets the typescripts. I think so. Um, yeah, because clearly he was he was an Orkney man and he lived his life there. So they didn't all go to Edinburgh. Yes, I think yeah. it's really neat. I haven't seen them yet because when I mm-hmm. when I was doing this research trip, I was a poor graduate student and only had so much money um, to yeah. uh, do transatlantic trips. And I was like, I can make it to Edinburgh, but I also need to get to Dublin because I was also working mm-hmm. on um, the playwright, Brian Friel. I've mm-hmm. got to get to Dublin to see Friel's manuscripts. And I just don't think I can cut in a trip to the far, far North of Scotland <laughs> to look yeah. at the typescripts, unfortunately. Yeah. So have the typescripts or have any, you mentioned photos. So we're going to have oh. some photos, um, of the manuscripts for our, for our show notes. Um, I'm assuming that's, a, that's okay to put them on our blog. Yeah. yeah. Has, 
And are those your photos or are they from, has it been like digitized? Okay. Okay. Uh And I'm guessing that the typescripts haven't been photographed or. Not that uh, I find. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably unlikely. We, We talk about this sometimes about digitization practices and how, you know, it's much more likely. It would be more likely that Edinburgh would have digitized their materials than the public library of Orkney, just because it's a little public library and they probably have other things to spend their money on. So many so, things probably. Yeah. 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 Okay. Ooh, so here's some photos. Oh, lots of photos. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. There's the newspaper clipping. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's the one. Oh my goodness. Oh, wow. And I'm noticing that there's a lot it looks like, well, these are notes, but it looks like there's a lot of sort of things that are crossed out. I've seen yeah. things that are There's a lot out. of things canceled. So I was uh-huh. looking, because um, I hadn't reviewed these in quite some time. Um, I'd read the novel again, but not necessarily looked at these. And so, yes, there's a lot he did. I think you can really see how this is a first novel from mm-hmm. the manuscript because there's just an immense number of changes at what you can tell are a pretty wide range of um, points that he's working at. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the notes, for instance, refer to one character as Vera. Uh, and it looks like quite late in the game, he changes her name to Alice. And so he goes back through everything and mm-hmm. crosses out Vera everywhere it appears and writes in Alice instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can kind of tell he's, he's, like working things out a little bit, a, n- a lot of the names change actually. So it was kind mm-hmm. of, um, that made it a little more challenging as well to go through. Cause some, he was really careful to go back and go, not Vera, Alice. And then others, mm-hmm. he wouldn't really bother to note it at all. And he would just go, I'm pretty sure that's this character. Like <laughs> this is, um, you know, Mrs. Evie, but he did not actually note her name change. Uh, so yes. Um, so, yeah, so I think sometimes he's just canceling out ideas and notes in particular. Like, if you look at the one that's on the yellow page, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, you can see a lot of really emphatic oh, crossings out. Oh, yeah, it's just been scribbled, scribbled right out. Like, he's just saying, I just don't want to do this at all. Yeah, like, I don't like this idea. Um, forget it. Forget it. We'll put yeah. that somewhere else. That's very neat. So I have a question about about names. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do a little bit. I've mentioned this before. I do I do writing myself. I write stories, and I love thinking of names for people and like making meaningful names. And I mm-hmm. guess I'm curious as to why he, if you know, like why he changed the names. Like why change it from Vera to Alice? And it was clearly something that he cared about, especially if he's going back through and making mm-hmm. sure that they're changing. He was changing other names. Do you have any idea why? Yeah, I think some of it was just the sound. Um, the mm-hmm. character who eventually winds up being named Alice, her last name is also Vor, V-A-O-R. Mm-hmm. And so I think Vera Vor, he thought was like alliterative in a way that wasn't really satisfying to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I think he, he liked the way Alice Vor flowed, I think a little bit better. Yeah. Um, I think it also fits the character. I mean, you think of, we have strong associations with the name Alice, for instance, from children's literature, which I think he's aware of. And and the character herself, he describes in the notes as being someone who is um, loving to all and incapable of holding a grudge against none. And I think something about the name, a name that we might associate with the child character in particular, mm-hmm. communicates the, I think, gentleness of, of her nature in a particular way that Vera, I think for him, did not. So Vera is a very adult name to me, despite the, um, yeah. yeah and she is a very is. adult I, character because she has seven kids, but there's something <laughs> really innocent and gentle about her as well that's yeah. really important to him. Yeah, I like that. Cool. Yeah, and he also, it's interesting as well, the mix of names. So this is where the character of Orkney is important to him too, because Orkney is kind of an odd duck in terms of Scottish identity. Um, mm-hmm. It's, uh, the, so Orkney for a long time was not even part of Scotland, uh, mm-hmm. becomes part of Scotland, I believe around the 15th century or so, um, right. when it's the, uh, a dowry is not paid for some uh, Scandinavian princess who marries a Scottish prince. And so since they default on the dowry, the Scots get Orkney. Instead. So was, was Orkney then part of Scandinavia? 
yeah. considered? Oh, wow. Okay. It, I don't think I knew that. In the language, they never spoke Gaelic there. Oh. They actually, until the 18th century, spoke a dialect of Norse called Norn. Oh my gosh, this is absolute news to me. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and so it's really fascinating because um, Mackay Brown with his characters' names is trying to reflect this blend of a kind of Norse identity that lingers in the island, but also the Scottishness that gradually creeps in as well. And, um, and so you'll have characters who have like the, the ferryman is named Ivan. You're going, that's not a particularly Scottish sounding name, right. but it is a very kind of Scandinavian-ish sounding name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's one that makes sense in that particular way. And so it pops up in the character names where he wants to show this blend of Scottishness, of Norseness, of uh, mm-hmm. Christianity, um, and then also the, the saga past as well. Because you will have characters who pop up in a lot of Orcadian literature who are named things like Thorfinn and Magnus and all these extremely Norse sounding names. And they're going, that is who we are. So, yeah. And it's, it creeps up in the dialect that appears in the novel as well, where we might think of Scottish characters referring to a young child as like, uh, for instance, one of Alice's children is called um, uh, Shirley. So we might think of, oh, it's, it's uh, we Shirley, little girl Shirley. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and no, in, in Orkney, they would say Petey. So it's Petey Shirley. Petey Shirley. Nice. And that's from the Norse. Yeah, I think it's a relic of the Norseness of the language. Yeah. Cool. That's very neat. So you mentioned um, the care. You, you said, I think maybe the character of Orkney. And I think, I think you were implying the care, not Orkney as like a character in the book, but the character. But I, I guess I'm wondering, does Orkney, I think a lot of times in, in writing, especially in, really distinctive places, the location does become like a character. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is does that happen in in this novel? And do you want to talk? Yeah. I, I realize well, I'm pulling very far away novel, from the manuscript part, but but I'm so curious about his writing and, and the, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. So so the plot of Greenville and Greenville is also, I, I love it because even the name itself is a little bit of a hybrid. Vaux is also from the Norse and it just means bay. So literally, this town is Green Bay. Um, <laughs> a little bit funny to us Americans. It is. I'm like, go cheese. Yay. Yes. But no. <laughs> so, so it's Greenville. Um, and so it's a little, it's an island with a fishing village, essentially. Um, and the story unfolds over the course of most of it over six days on the island. Um, and he has this great line again in his autobiography where he, he something obviously ominous and terrible is looming over the island the whole time. Mm-hmm. He says, but it's not the character of the island. The island itself, or in the village, describes the village as a, a tawdry, gossipy Eden. It's such a great description. And so you do get that <laughs> sense of there's, and, and he also really loves land and place really deeply. And so he does characterize the island itself as being, it does feel Edenic at times. The children run around and find flowers and seashells and um, uh, people, there's there's one farmer in particular just has this lovely, prosperous farm and he's a, a kind of pillar of the community too. And <clears throat> is described as like so gentle and welcoming and hospitable. And that uh, Mackay Brown sees that as coming from the relationship to the land. This is a man who loves his land and it's just reflected in everything in his life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's a hard, it is a hard place to live as well. You're going, this is fishermen on an island. They, they face drowning and shipwreck. They face bad harvest. So even though it's in the 20th century um, and close to the time it's published, it's published in 72 and you can feel that you're going, it does feel like we're in the 1960s or so at least. Um, so it feels modern. It feels old at the same time. And you're going, this is a place where modernity is creeping in um, and old old ways are still there at the same time. And he's not nostalgic about those. He goes, this is a hard life. And we should always remember this is a hard life. Mm-hmm. But there are gifts that come with it, like knowing the land and the place intimately. And so Orkney, the people of Greenville and the land itself of Greenville are really similar. We're going sometimes tender and beautiful, sometimes hard and mean, um, sometimes both of those in the same scene. And and that shapes the way they interact and engage with each other, where even as well as, as much as they might pick at each other or criticize each other, uh, this is also not a place where anyone lets anyone else starve or go hungry either. They kind of make sure that everyone has what they need, at least just enough to get by. 
Um, even though they also have a lot of little territorial squabbles, two of the fishermen are quarreling because one is convinced that the other is robbing his lobster creels um, and stealing his catch. So right. sensitive stuff. Um, but the same fisherman also, when he comes in, his wife makes a point of taking fish over to that, that young woman who has seven children and no husband. Um, and, and takes fish over to her and her husband goes, that's, that's wasteful, that's spendthrift. And she says, the miracle in the loaves of the fishes has never ended, Samuel. And I mm -hmm. go, uh, oh, that's really beautiful. And so the sense of on the one hand, life can be meager, but also life can be plentiful. Mm -hmm. um, and that I think is very much Brown's understanding of what Orkney is and how the people are too. So, yeah. So we have these six days where things unfold. We kind of just follow the villagers through these six days. And um, an outsider comes in on the second day and everyone's speculating about who he is, what he means, all of that. And he doesn't interact with any of them really at all. And on the sixth day, you find out he's there apparently from the government or the military, and they are going to take over the island for a particular um military industrial project and oh boot all the islanders off right and oh. uh and it feel it probably felt a little bit far-fetched as he was constructing it but two years after greenbow is published the entire orkney island of flotta is evicted so that a north sea oil refinery can be put, right. put there instead and so i think about 70 70 to 100 villagers are, are evicted and moved elsewhere oh, and, and then people look at greenbow and they go Weirdly <laughs> yeah yeah it's it is funny how um so i i write horror and i read horror mm. and it is funny like funny i'm putting doing air quotes read like reading you know stories that were written you know years ago even not that long ago and thinking oh gosh like that's really awful and then like here's the world and that's and it's and it is prophetic, and so it, it is. Yeah. It's not surprising to me that that he would. He's probably thinking like, "What's the worst possible thing that could happen?" Uh -huh. And then real life is sort of reflecting, um, you know, reflects that after a while because that's sometimes how it is, which is yeah, great, you know. It's just it's just gonna happen. Yeah, it's just the reality. That was so sad. I feel terrible for for those. I'm already attached to them, to to Alice and all her kids. No. Um, <laughs> you know. So. And he heightens it too. So I mentioned that part of, or I think you mentioned part of my interest is is in um, sort of theology and ritual and how that appears in mm -hmm. the texts. And something that happens at the end of each day as you're going through is that there's this local, very local island specific quasi-Christian, quasi-pagan ritual um, that the men of the island are doing with some young man who's obviously coming of age. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's obviously different steps um, of the ritual he goes through every single night where he, um, it's, it's obviously, like I said, it's kind of a coming of age thing. It's also kind of quasi-religious and, and they describe themselves as the horsemen. And this young man goes through mm -hmm. these different steps of becoming like the sower, like sower of corn, um, mm -hmm. harvester, and all these steps. And there's a symbolic death that happens on the night of the fifth day. Um, and it's just showing you this sense of like their own sense of place and relation to place. And that this young man's ritual, it ends with the symbolic death in this moment. And obviously, it's supposed to come with the resurrection too, right. because they're all kicked off the island. Right. The resurrection part can't happen. Like the whole ritual gets interrupted. And right. so I mean, spoil the ending of the novel a little bit, just a touch. It does finally end with all of them coming back to the island to finish the ritual. And so the young man, who's not so young now, like, I mean, he is still young, but it's several years later, lays back down in the, the grave that they put him in. And then they complete the words where they say, okay, let, what words will the corpse speak to us now? And... And they listen to him. And then the, the master horseman who's running the whole thing um, says, I could be wrong. It could be nothing. But I think the word he said was resurrection. And, right. uh, and so then he gets to come back out of the grave and they share in a very appropriately Scottish version of the Eucharist, bread and whiskey. Bread and whiskey. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> they don't do wine Gosh. in Orkney after all, but they do do whiskey. Yeah. They do do whiskey. This is kind of making me want to read this book. I have never, I never heard of it before, but it's, um, but it sounds, 
very deep. And yeah. I'm guessing because, um, because the writer is a poet, started out as a poet, it's probably very like, po- is it written like, like poetry, like beautiful language, there's I'm guessing. There's that are, and there's certainly, there's these great moments where each day, of course, and again, there's not just the ritual of the horsemen. I think the corresponding ritual is also that of the women going to the shop every day to buy their daily necessities of, you know, margarine, flour, cigarettes, oil, things like that. Um, and so he the has four food groups. Yes, the critical <laughs> ones, right? <laughs> um, and so they go into the shop and it takes a while to catch on to how it's working because he's writing dialogue that is on the one hand dialogue between them, but also you realize some of what they're saying is what they say to the woman who runs the shop, but then some of the things are actually the things they're saying inside of themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and he just leaves you to navigate between that. So an example of that would be, let's see, can I find one of my early pages? Um, probably should have marked it. Um, but like one of them will say, oh, I want, I want half a pound of margarine and paraffin and, uh, and I want this. And then here's the things that I'm thinking about my husband, you know, who's, who's mm-hmm. a lazy, good for nothing layabout. I'm like, oh, she's not actually saying this. Everyone knows it, but she wouldn't right. actually say it in the shop. And so he has this fascinating, like really smooth move between the inner and the outer lives of the characters mm-hmm. where he's going, if we could just talk, this is maybe the thing I would say, um, but I can't just talk actually, not about this. This is too personal and too private. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's really lovely in those moments where you're going, oh, this is fascinating. He also talks about his favorite character in the book, who's kind of, he has characters who are so clearly parts of himself in one way or another. My favorite detail is that on the third day, Wednesday, um, a young man visits the island. He's a, a Scottish Indian peddler, like silk peddler. He comes from a textiles family. And usually he and his uncle visit the islands and they make their rounds selling silks and things like that. The lovely detail is that he's also a student at the University of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Indian kid, Johnny Singh is his name. And, and he comes around and his, his voice is so poetic. He's a student at University of Edinburgh. He's writing a thesis on Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, which I love as well because Brown has a really broad sense of what comprises identity. Um, he's not precious about what counts as Orkney, what counts as Scotland. And so Johnny Singh because he's a, like, he lives in Scotland, he studies at Edinburgh, he loves Hopkins. Uh, Brown is like, well, he's Indian, but also very clearly, he is Scottish. He's Scottish, yeah. Yeah. Um, and his voice is so beautifully poetic as he observes everyone in there. And you go, he's the character, if there's one character who most represents actually Brown's point of view, it's probably mm-hmm. Johnny Singh. Because Brown also studied at University of Edinburgh and wrote a thesis on Gerard Manley Hopkins. Oh, right. So it's like his self-insert character almost. It really is. A lot of people think there's a guy who's writing this mostly fictional history of the island. He's just called The Scarf, um, mm-hmm. S-K-A-R-F. And people think he's Brown's self-insert character. But going, he's not because he's, he's very despairing at his heart. And he doesn't actually care at all about the truth. But Johnny Singh sees everything truly and poetically and beautifully. And you're going, he's the self-insert character. Is this Indian kid who's visiting. Um, So he's really lovely. But the character Brown says he loves the most in the narrative is um, the mother of the minister, who's actually from mainland Scotland, um, from Edinburgh. And she, she's this woman who's obviously racked by guilt over, like she's accusing herself of having, being responsible for everything that's gone wrong in her life and her son's life and the lives of everyone she knows. And, uh, and you realize what she's describing is, is a depressive state. Yeah. Um, but she calls it her season of the assize, where all of her mental accusers come and put her on trial. And, um, and, it's, and so she kind of rehashes all these episodes from her life where she goes, oh, this thing happened. Like, this is a very, a very Scottish thing. So it's important to know Brown is a convert to Catholicism. He's raised Presbyterian, but he converts to Catholicism. There's this bit where Mrs. McKee, this old woman, in the assize is blaming herself for her niece converting to Catholicism because she went into a Catholic church on a family holiday that they all went on. She goes, Oh, it's my fault. She turned to that idolatrous religion. No. And there's a lovely bit where Johnny Singh meets her and sees how tormented she is. And he says to her so gently, you cannot do this to yourself. And he goes, and 
even if you must do this to yourself, you don't have to give in at every moment. You can hold it. You can make it wait. And so there's this fascinating way he gives her a little bit of strength to hold it off as well. But Brown said Mrs. McKee was his favorite character in Greenville. And even mm. though by the end of his career, he goes, oh, I don't like the novel very much anymore. He says, but I don't like anything that I did in the past. Everything cooled <laughs> for me very quickly. He goes, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I'll pour myself a glass of whiskey and I'll pull the novel down and I'll spend half an hour with Mrs. McKee. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, just, that's you know, also, yeah. She does sound also relatable. It sounds like a lot of kind of relatable, you know, characters. I mean, I haven't, I haven't ever been uh, clinically depressed, but there's definitely moments where I'm like, gosh, I really could have made a different choice and things would have been better if I had just done something. Yes. Yeah. The overthinking yeah. of it all yeah. um, and how it builds, it builds to a climax as well, where even, and you see this in the manuscript too, Mrs. McKee's, um, reflections build in severity until she's thinking about her son who's an alcoholic and how that also must be entirely her fault too. Mm -hmm. um, and so at that point, right before everything crumbles, that's when her assize um, brings back up everything she might've done to contribute to her son's alcoholism. And, and you're yeah. just like, no, it's, it's not you, but she has, she has to blame herself for it. So. Yeah. yeah. So Maybe now is a good time to turn back to the manuscripts. because you've been talking a lot about, about the novel itself. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would love to talk more about this because it is, it's, it shows his writing process. Um, and I guess I'd like you to say more if you can about, because you mentioned how, how the manuscript sort of shows, is it Mrs. McKee? Mm -hmm. Her, yeah, shows her, and I'm wondering, can you explain like what you mean by that? Like, how does the manuscript show her? Yeah, so if you look at this one, you can see these are kind of his planning notes, and I don't have the Mrs. McKee page. I didn't wind up photographing it, it looks like, but you can see okay. that what it has here is a, a heading for each of the characters, and he essentially, at this point in the note-taking, plots out for each of them what they're doing on each day of the week. So Monday mm -hmm. through Saturday is essentially what he portrays here. And, and so for Mrs. McKee as well, for instance, you have the, okay, here's what happens Monday. Here's what happens Tuesday. Here's Thursday. Um, and, and he does like, uh, again, develop a lot of these, but you do see her son, Simon, Reverend Simon McKee mm -hmm. is given a page there at the top, right. And um, yeah. And you can see some of the crossing out as well. Where you're going, oh, I'm not happy with what I'm doing here. This is not what he should be doing on this particular day. Yeah, there's a lot of crossing out. And it looks like it's and different ink. So <laughs> some of it's written in, it looks like pencil. And there's blue ink and red ink and lots mm -hmm. of crossing out also in different inks. There's dark black. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so you see this wrestling where he's going. You can tell that the seven-day structure is very clearly plotted out in his head at this yeah. point. But he's trying to make sure what happens on each day for each character aligns in some way. Right. And so, for instance, if you look at Simon McKee's, um, if you look at the Thursday, for instance, um, yes. he kind of has the, there's something crossed out. And it's actually very hard to read because he's, he's crossed it out with a pretty heavy pencil. Mm -hmm. um, something about a visitation. Right. And, and what he subs that out with is um, Death of BB, which is uh, Ben, ben Budge. Okay. dies on that particular day. And so Simon has to go and meet with the sister. Um, and so, yeah. And there's actually things on here that he winds up changing that he doesn't cross out. For instance, you see above that on Wednesday, um, it says, argues with Indian on religion. And so he's obviously mm -hmm. thinking about Johnny Singh and, right. and the Reverend encountering at that point. But in the novel, Johnny and Simon never actually have an argument about religion at all. Oh. So I think we decided, actually, I don't, that's not actually what I want in this particular yeah. moment. Johnny's not really an arguer anyway. Um, right. So yes. So there's a lot that he's changing as he's working on this. Mm -hmm. But and so, yeah. So I think the different stages, the different kinds of ink he's using is probably a different point at which he's going, I've got to, this isn't working. I've got to cross this out and change it. Um, Cause it's not matching with what other characters are doing on that day, or it's not matching the theme of the particular day. And so I need to work with that in particular. I love this because the, the 
the manuscripts that we usually look at on the podcast are mm-hmm. mostly medieval yes, and, you know, or at least a lot older or they're more final. So we did, we, we did have a conversation with, um, I'm going to, I'm blanking on her name, Emily, uh, who did 19th century. She, we were talking okay. about 19th century, 19th century novel manuscripts, which you'd be like, you know, 19th or earlier, you know, but like novel mm-hmm. manuscripts. Okay. But they were like final versions. It's like, here's the final copy that I have made from, for my friend that I'm giving it to. Um, so you don't see in any of those, do you mm-hmm. ever see the author themselves making decisions? Like sometimes in earlier manuscripts, you will get people yeah. later, people reading them and interacting with them. But there seems to be something very different about the author himself, like yes. interacting with his own thoughts and like coming up with it. It's just, I'm finding I'm talking, but I'm having trouble, like even coming up with like intelligent questions to ask because it's so different no, it, from what I'm it, used it to. It's so fascinating to see the author in dialogue with his earlier self and going like, Oh, you thought you wanted this. I mean, it's actually on that um, Monday to Saturday schedule that he has a character who's Olive, the nurse. She doesn't even mm-hmm. appear in the final novel. So I think as he's plotting things out and aligning these timelines, he just goes, she doesn't fit. She doesn't fit. Get rid of her. Um, Or I think she gets folded into the, the white, the shopkeeper, because you might notice her work is mostly gossiping. And Mm -hmm. that is what the shopkeeper's (laughs) wife mostly does is gossip and sell things. And so I think he goes, I don't need a nurse and a shopkeeper's wife. I can just sort of collapse them into one. And, and that can be what I have instead. Um, so yes. And then, yeah, I think also if you look at, there's one, let's see, it's, um, the second image in the album where you also see him plotting out what happens to each of the characters once the island is taken over mm-hmm. as well. So this is before he writes it. And you can also see, I think what's really interesting is him putting them in order. Mm-hmm. Like when and where and how am I going to cover each of these characters? Um, right. as I go through this, it's kind of the sixth day, but it also unfolds over the space of several months. Um, what's going to happen to each of them and what's the best order in which to treat that. So he goes, Oh, the scarf, number one, uh, Bert Kirsten, number two. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, kind of moving through that and going, Oh, it's fascinating to see him trying to figure out what parts, what characters, um, little narratives speak to each other and connect to each other the most strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they're going to be the most effective. He didn't wind up actually following this ordering, which is also fascinating to realize when you look right. at the, the final product <laughs> and the notes, you're going, there's so much work. And this is, again, I think fascinating about working with the manuscript for someone's first novel, where they're figuring it all out as they go along. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what, a lot of what we're seeing here is also first time writer nerves in action, where he's going, I like I have all these ideas, but how do I make them fit? Mm-hmm. Um because I've never done this before and it's all completely new to me. I have to ask, mm-hmm. who is Stella? It's written, there's, it's just one, it's written in sort of big letters and there's mm-hmm. blue and red overlaid and, it, and, it, and then there's a blue sort of box around it. Like, is Stella a very important character or is it just- She's not actually a character at all, she's a person. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, so when he was in Edinburgh, he's he's in Edinburgh at the tail end of the Scottish Renaissance. Um, it's kind of kicked off by Hugh McDermott and then continued by people like Sidney Goodsir Smith and Norman McKaig. Um, and the, so these are all poets mostly, but also the, a number of them are fiction writers too. And they all hang out in pubs on Rose Street in Edinburgh. And since he is also an aspiring poet, uh, he hangs out in the pubs on Rose Street as well and meets a lot of these people. And Stella is Stella Cartwright, who is a young woman who became known as the muse of Rose Street, where all these people were fascinated by her and at least a little bit in love with her, including Brown himself. Um, They were actually apparently very briefly engaged, uh, did not, they they broke it off, but um, they remained quite close. They wrote to each other consistently until her death in 1985. Um, she was apparently this beautiful young woman, never actually produced anything herself, but she was friends with all these men. And Brown in his autobiography describes her as this muse figure who is just her, her love of art that never becomes, as he puts it, kind of precious or fetishistic. He goes, she loves art, but she's not obsessive about it. Um, but she can always talk about it. She's always interested in it. And she's intelligent enough to say things about it. 
And so that she has this, this muse purpose for the men. And I think this comes from the point at which he was very much in love with her. And so it's that thing of he's working on, I think this is from the, the manuscript for a play, actually. And he's obviously working on the play. And then it's just that moment where he kind of gets sidetracked and just starts doodling Stella's name, right? Going over and over and over. <laughs> and it's just, I love it because one thing I loved about his archive was just all the little hints of his personality that come through in it. Yeah. Um, the dialogue on the bingo card and the newspaper advertisement, but also stopping in the middle of drafting to just doodle the name of the girl he's in love with. Oh, did he ever get married? Or, <laughs> he did you know, not. Um, he was single for pretty much his whole life. He was um, in love with Stella for a bit. And like I said, briefly engaged. Uh, when he moves back to Orkney, he does have a brief affair with a Viennese jewelry maker who had moved to Orkney. Um, and and that was, um, a, a, he also described that as, I think it was around 1976. Mm -hmm. Um and he says that was one of also his most creatively productive times of his life as well. Um, and I think that just fizzled out. There's never any news of like his, his relationships going dramatically awry. I think mm -hmm. they just kind of dissipate. Um, so the jewelry maker one dissipates. And then he develops an infatuation with a, a much younger woman when he's older um, named um, Kenna, I believe. And the real reason for it is apparently she has a very strong resemblance to Stella Cartwright. Oh. And it's a, kind of a very one-sided attraction. She's mm -hmm. fascinated by him because he's this famous author at this point in Orkney. Um, and he writes a lot of poems and letters for her, but there's no evidence that it progressed anything past him being kind of infatuated with this girl who reminded him of a girl he'd been in love with before. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I kind of, I kind of love him. He sounds like a really interesting person. Yeah, he's so eccentric in some ways, but he's also just very self-deprecating. I like him because he is, he's a little bit of a mess, but he knows he's a little bit of a mess. Yeah. And uh, and he's definitely trying not to hurt anybody as part yeah. of being a mess. He feels very bad, for instance, nice. where he's relating an incident from when he was younger and he came home very drunk one night and apparently in a fit of drunken peak threw all his books down the stairs and then also fell down the stairs himself and his mother finds him there in the mornings just going oh, no. what are you doing and he goes, <laughs> i felt very bad for her confusion in that moment for sure yes. <laughs> but oh, that's gosh. kind of the worst of his baby like he's he's drunk and disorderly a few times but that's about the worst thing it ever seems that he does yeah, um, he just likes drinking a little bit too much, and and he's a bit, as he says himself, on the lazy side, yeah. so he doesn't do a lot. But, oh, relatable. Um, <laughs> it is. I know. <laughs> Haven't we all been there one way or another? No. So one, um, just, just every once in a while. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it doesn't seem like he was a man with much of a temper, particularly. He just really liked mm -hmm. to read and have a couple pints in the bar and chat with people. Yeah. and write his his poems and his stories his little stories very cool and so people remember him quite affectionately he had he had a tremendous number of friends because the orkney islands were sort of a popular holiday destination at this time and so people like the composer peter maxwell davies um went up there and and would work there in the summers and things like that and brown and maxwell davies actually became extremely tight and maxwell davies sent a number of his works to music mm -hmm. for instance and so it just seemed like he got along with people quite well and was very friendly with a lot of people and so eccentric, but kind of harmlessly. So. Yeah. Nice. So I'm going to turn to Lindsay cause she's been sitting here very quietly listening and, and I'm just curious if you have any questions for Elizabeth. Well, I am just sort of taking this all in. I have heard of Brown before, like I've seen his name, um, oddly enough, I think I might have seen an object of his get evaluated on the really? British version of Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> Something random like that. I love it. Uh, how long did he work on Greenbow? Not terribly long. I think he indicated that it was it was maybe around like 1969 or so, 68 or 69, where someone suggested to him that he try writing a novel. And so I think he spends a couple of years working on it. Um and then it's published. I mean, I think the manuscript goes in in 71 for publication in 72. Okay. Is it still in um, print? I think so. This copy that I have, I bought 
I, I want to say around 2012 or so. Um, and it's a 2004, okay. I think, reprinting of the novel. Yeah, 2004, um, Polygon reprinted it. Um, so yeah, some of his works are harder to find, but Polygon put um, Greenbow and several of his short story collections back into print at that time. Okay. And his final novel, Beside the Ocean of Time, was still in print around then as well, which uh, makes sense because he was shortlisted for the Booker Prize for that novel. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was really quite successful as a fiction writer. He was shortlisted for the Booker. Um, his book, The Golden Bird, won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, which is one of the big fiction prizes over in the UK. Um, and he was nominated or shortlisted for, for some of those prizes as well, pretty regularly. He won um, a few awards from like the Scottish Arts Council, um, things like that. So he kind of, yeah, is... I think especially the more popular works like Beside the Ocean of Time are definitely pretty easy to find. Um, some of the odder things can be a little trickier. I'm not sure his novel Magnus, which is one that he thinks is his best. Um, I don't know that that's still in print. Um, and that's a fascinating one because that is him. Like it's, it's about St. Magnus of Orkney in particular. And he does this fascinating thing where he's retelling the life of St. Magnus. Um, and then in the moment in which Magnus is martyred, he suddenly leaps forward into the 20th century and the actual martyrdom he portrays is it's fictionalized and no names are given, but it's very clearly of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a Nazi concentration camp. Okay. And then he jumps backwards to Magnus mm -hmm. once again. Um, and I think that's maybe too weird for some people, but I can see what he's doing there. And I think it's really uh, beautiful, but we're going I know somebody who would love to read this. I'm married. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fantastic novel, honestly. <laughs> so uh, he converted from Presbyterianism to Catholicism. Do we know what led to that? What impact it had on his life and his... So writing? I love that one critic mentioning that he um, converted to Catholicism notes that when he converted... So he converted to 1960 when he is... Uh, almost 40. Uh, and it's a long process. He's been kind of thinking about it, interested in it um, for at least 10 years at that point. And that's just kind of when he formalizes it. But this person in describing his, I can't remember who said it, but in describing his conversion says, um, nothing about his day-to-day -day life changed, including his drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think you do see like, yes, in terms of his personal habits, nothing changed except also he went to mass. I think that's the one thing that did change is he regularly went to mass. Um, but it was this really gradual, slow process. I think Hopkins is an important figure in that, um, where he loves both what Hopkins does with language, um, and also Hopkins religious thought. Um, he loves, I mean, he is so attracted to the medieval past of Orkney as well. So things like the Orkneyinga, the saga literature, but then also the history of the saints. I mean, there's a cathedral, um, in Orkney, the cathedral of St. Magnus. And he loves that place so much. And so I think these relics of the Catholic past are attractive to him. Mm -hmm. The Eucharist as mm -hmm. both a religious idea and an artistic symbol is really important to him. He sees it not just as kind of this sacrament, but also as this element of almost covenant between human and land. Um, and so it becomes this place where all those things come together. Uh, he has a very like agricultural imagination in many ways. Um, wheat and corn are always super important symbols to him. And so the Eucharist is really important in that way too. And of course, in Scottish Presbyterianism, the Eucharist is not nearly as valued. He has no real sense of its importance when he's growing up, but he's attracted to how significant it is in Catholicism. Um, and he has a family where there's a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment, of course, in the UK and in Scotland, especially, which he always is very, like he portrays very faithfully in his novels at times, while also keeping a very clear Catholic imagination in play. Um, but his family themselves were actually like pretty, pretty nice about Catholics. I think his mother in particular worked in a hotel with um, some Irish girls and, uh, and like when she was a teenager. And so her impression of them was just like those Irish Catholic girls were just, they were my mates at work. So they weren't really that scary at all. Um, <laughs> and so his family takes his conversion pretty well. Um, but yeah, I think for him, it's this deep sense of connection to the past that makes that conversion important, as well as his sense of um, a kind of sacramental imagination that connects human beings to the land. 
much more strongly than um, he feels that a Presbyterian imagination can do. Mm -hmm. right, right after his conversion, he's very harsh on John Knox and on Calvin and on Presbyterianism in general. And that does ameliorate over the course of his life where he's going, well, I mean, being brought up Protestant didn't destroy me. So he softens, but <laughs> he does have that initial convert zeal where he goes, Knox, the scourge of Scotland. So, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> well, that was really the main question I had. I'm just very, well, personally very curious about faith journeys and how it affects us in daily lives, creative mm -hmm. life, all of that. And so thank you for yeah. explaining that. I do love it because, I mean, given the show's focus on, on so many medieval manuscripts, it's fun to see a 20th century author who, on the one hand, is so modern, but also loves all of this old medieval stuff too, and is often yeah. trying to pull that influence into his work. Yeah, yeah. And I can see that in in what we've what we've talked about. I mean, yeah all of that. So I'm, I'd like to know more about you. So how did you get interested in Brown and the other, the other work that you, that work, work that you do? Yes. Yeah, so I knew, I knew I was interested in the intersection of religion and literature. I mean, I was raised religious myself. I think a little bit like Brown, um, though I did not make this connection until I was working on him. I, I came from a tradition that did not especially value art and literature. And so then as I got older, became very hungry for seeing what art and literature was doing um, in relation to religious ideas, religious history. Um, and so I actually went to seminary, um, though not to become a minister. I went right. to a, a theological school in British Columbia that has a really strong focus on the intersection of religion and the arts. Mm -hmm. and, and so I wrote a thesis on Denise Lovertoff, for example, while I was there. And, and that was a wonderful place. And that's where I discovered Brown, um, mm -hmm. one of my professors there was the one who went, I think, I think you would like this guy. And, um, and so she was, she was very right. I read all of his poetry in the space of about two months and went, yeah, this is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> I'm into it. And uh, so, yes. Yeah, so then I, um, I thought I was interested in working on the Welsh poet R.S. Thomas, uh, who's also an Anglican minister and wrote a lot of really fascinating religious poetry, also poetry about Welsh nationalism, uh, amazing, interesting poet um, in his own right, too. So I was very attracted to the 20th century, but um, this intersection of religion and literature seemed to be a place where um, novelists and poets could grapple with the past as well. It's the sense of continuity with the past, but also wrestling th through it and thinking through how we have wound up exactly where we are, um, especially for both Brown and for um, R.S. Thomas writing in the Cold War, thinking about how the nuclear age mm -hmm. um, connects to all of this in particular mm -hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, so then I started my PhD and my focus kind of shifted away from Thomas, uh, but my the professor I wound up doing my dissertation with um, also loved Brown. And I remember the first time I, I sat and chatted with him, we were talking about authors that we were both interested in. And I mentioned Brown and he just lit up and he went, I have mm -hmm. never met a student who already knew who George Mackay Brown was. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was the start of our working relationship. Um, and, uh, and so it wound up being this interesting kind of regional writers, especially in my dissertation. So I had Brown mm -hmm. as an Orkney writer, Brian Friel as a um, writer from the North in Ireland, in the rural North particularly. And then the Welsh poet, Gillian Clark, um, was kind of my third major modern writer. And, and it was just fascinating because they all had obviously really keenly shaped religious imaginations, um, but were also so very planted in the questions and the quandaries of their present day at the same time. And we're wrestling through them so thoughtfully using things like um, liturgical structures and rituals as a medium for puzzling through these things that they were um, grappling with at various points in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So that was that was kind of how I got into that. And then it's kind of continued from there. Uh, a lot of the work I've done lately has been on Irish writers. And that's just because the uh, American Conference for Irish Studies, or ACES, is a really lovely academic community. And uh, so that's been the conference I've tried to make sure I go to every single year. So it just mm -hmm. does mean a lot of my research winds up being on Irish stuff, which... Yeah. Hard life, having to read Hard great life. Irish writers. <laughs> I am a fan of, I, I lived in Ireland for a while. Actually, my son was born in Ireland when I was oh, working amazing. there. So I, I'm i a fan. <laughs> yeah, no, they're wonderful. And I have found, um, so I'm now in my fifth year at Hillsdale. 
And, and I found the students really connect really strongly to the Irish writers as well in teaching them. Um, I think because it's adjacent to British literature, so they know a little bit, but there's all this mm -hmm. other history as well right. that feels like it's being unlocked for them for the first time. Right. And so it's almost like this counter narrative to the British narrative history that they've absorbed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the and and, and a, um, you know, Irish versus Ireland versus Britain in an antagonistic mm -hmm. kind of way. That must yes. be really interesting to open open that up to them. It's so fascinating. Um, so I've taught, um, I'm, I'm currently teaching a modern Irish poetry course, which has been really fun. Um, we just wrapped Seamus Heaney and started Yvonne Boland, um, who they're really enjoying. And, um, and we did Yeats and Patrick Kavanaugh as well, of course. Mm -hmm. And so they find the religious dimension of the work really interesting, but also the way it intersects with history, I think mm -hmm. is fascinating to all of them. Um, so yes, but I'm really hoping, I do miss working on Scottish and Welsh writers. So I'm hoping to get back to that a bit as well. Um, I do really love Gillian Clark and Gwyneth Lewis from Wales as well as exciting writers. And um, I'd love to start doing some work on Jackie Kay, who's a Scottish poet, who's also just fantastic. Um, and also Brown, I'd love to get back into Brown again because um, mm -hmm. he is just such a character and so enjoyable. But yeah, I think there's just this fascinating way in which um, the religious imagination of the writers allow them to grapple with the 20th century mm -hmm. in a way that is actually really expansive as well. It's not a kind of narrow vision of things and, and it can do, allow them to do really surprising stuff. Um, I just love Gillian Clark's poem, uh, Making the Beds for the Dead, which starts off as being a poem about the um, foot and mouth epidemic in 2001 mm -hmm. oh. uh, that affected livestock throughout the UK. Yeah. And it starts off about that because she's in rural Wales. Everybody has sheep. Oh, yeah. And, that and must so have been it, devastating. Yeah. And she captures that so moving. I was like, I never thought I'd feel so strongly about sheep, but man, I do. <laughs> and, and then what happens is, of course, and we don't think, I think what's amazing is how these writers show different things in um, aligning. Mm -hmm. When this epidemic is at its worst, September 11th happens. Oh, and she's like these right. two kinds of devastation meeting in this right. moment and just going, what is this world that we're in right now? Um, and that sense of grief and the collection as a whole. So the title collection is Making the Beds for the Dead. And that's also the name of the collection. And the collection of the whole kind of follows this biblical structure. It begins with creation and right. with the culmination of sort of the September 11th date. You're like, this is the world ending in some right. ways as far as she understands. But the final poem is the recreation of everything. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really moving. You're going, oh, there's this fascinating way where even though she's religiously lapsed at that point, those religious structures let her think through mm -hmm. these really traumatic years um, in such a thoughtful and insightful way and to write yeah. something so moving. Yeah. This actually brings up a question that I meant, I meant to ask this much earlier in the conversation, but then I think we got sidetracked. And mm -hmm. that is the seven-day structure yeah. of Greenville. It doesn't escape me that, of course, the Genesis starts with the seven days of creation. Yes. Um, starting with the, you know, the creation of the, I think, like the celestial bodies and then mm -hmm. moving on to the creation of human, you know, humans at the end. And um, I assume that's purposeful yes. <laughs> on his part. And if you want to say more than that, I would love to hear. Uh, yeah. I'd love to hear that. I think so. I mean, I think on the one hand, like, like he said, just the week has a flavor to him every single day. And mm -hmm. so that's one thing he liked. But it's also notable that the sixth day, which, of course, in the creation narrative is the creation of humankind, mm -hmm. is the day everything falls apart here. Right. Um, and that's obviously Brown, I think, thinking through just the terrible things human beings are capable of doing. Right. Um, and it's an ironic move, too, because we have the seven days of creation, which any sort of seven day structure is going to be pointing back to in many cases. Mm -hmm. And um, on the sixth day in which humankind is created is the day of decreation for the island right. itself. Um, it's everything crumbles and falls apart. The whole social structure is ripped to shreds and and everyone disperses to different places. Um, but I do think it's fascinating as well that, of course, the seventh day in the um, creation narrative is the Sabbath, the seventh mm -hmm. day God rested. And right. the seventh day is that long, much later day where all of the, the participants in the ritual return to the island to finally perform the final stage in the ritual that was interrupted in the wake of everything that happened. 
And so he goes, everything has been torn apart, but here's this moment maybe where things might start to be knit back together. And that's perhaps the vision of Sabbath that he has, or this idea of in a sacramental imagination, um, everything is kind of restored in that moment of sacrifice in particular. And I think it's actually the page with the newspaper. Yes. If you go back to the archive pictures, Mm -hmm. um, the, the newspaper advert page is that final day of the ritual. Oh, wow. Okay. So if you look in the upper corner there, oh, um, it's, it's uh, the upper right corner where it's a fairly bold black ink thing. It yes. says M of H, what did the dust seem to say? And mm. or L of H. And then MH says resurrection. Resurrection. Yeah. Neat. Very cool. I think that that's actually a really great place to end yeah. uh, this conversation. So, resurrection, right? Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been, this is, it's been really different. Thank you to everyone who's listening, who stayed all the way to the end. Cause I know this is really different from our usual, um, our usual uh, show, but I, I have learned a lot about somebody that I didn't know and a new works and lots to think about so yes thank Thank you you for letting some 20th century archive stuff creep in with all the medieval beautiful medieval things thank you for listening to inside my favorite manuscript please if you enjoy the podcast leave a rating or a review at apple podcasts or wherever you listen Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.